experience the life-changing love of Christ. We're glad that you've chosen to invest part of your weekend here together. Uh, today, we continue uh, in our series, but uh, as, as a church, we, what we strive to do is, is to take the pattern of Jesus as, uh, the pattern of Jesus' life as our pattern for the way we live our life. And as such, we want to glorify him as we prioritize being together, uh, as we engage with each other in community, as we hear and respond to the word of God, as we seek to grow, and as we strive to be a tangible presence of grace in our communities and in the world uh, through our engagement with, with everyone that we come in contact with. And so as we have that as the backdrop of what we're doing, today we, we jump into this series, uh, week four of I Deserve It. Uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, what we feel like we deserve. That, that's what this series is about. We uh, d- believe we deserve certain things, and, and what we're looking at is the, the things that we spend time thinking we deserve, often those thoughts turn into beliefs and those beliefs turn into actions and those actions uh, tend to set the course for our lives. And so as we think about what we deserve, it, it's something that we need to contemplate and we need to consider whether or not we truly deserve that which we think we deserve. So this morning, I want to invite you, and in fact, I, I want to encourage you, beg with you, plead with you, I don't know what word to use there, to grab your Bible, uh, to grab the blue Bible in front of you, to open your phone to the, the Bible app, put the, put the scriptures in your hand today, because we're going to be in two primary scriptures that I really just want you to be able to look at, because I'm not going to read all of it, but there's so much packed into these couple of scriptures. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22. We're also going to be in Matthew chapter 26 primarily, and we're going to dip into chapter 27 toward the end. And I just want you to be able to, to flip back and forth between those two. So grab one of those prayer cards that you're not filling out for our prayer ministry, right? And mark one of them. Put your finger in the other one, and uh, just that way you're ready to go with this. Uh, part of the vision, uh, as I already mentioned, is that we will be a group of believers who hear and respond to the Word of God. And in this particular season in the life of the church, we are focused in on growth. And we're focused in on the the spiritual growth of each individual believer. And we're encouraging and challenging people to, to go from where they are and to take the next step in their faith. So God will meet you where you are, and he wants to encourage you to take that next step, and we want to be a part of that as well and help to facilitate that. Well, one of the amazing things that we find in God's word is that we really do not receive what we deserve, right? We do not receive what we deserve. Instead, what we receive is love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And and probably lots of what we do in life, lots of our actions and things, they probably mean that we deserve to be disqualified. That we deserve to to be disqualified because of our mistakes and our failures. Uh, Many times our mistakes and and failures, they are painful. They hurt ourselves. They hurt others. They they hurt the people around us. And to illustrate this point, I want to look at two guys in the Bible who messed up big time. And they deserve to be disqualified. And, And yet because of the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, they were given another chance. Two stories that are very similar in the way that they were disqualified, but very different uh, from the perspective of how these two men responded to what they did. And it challenges us to consider what will our response be. 
So the first person I want to look at today is Peter. If you're in the Gospel of Luke and you go to chapter 22, we see that the greater context of what's going on here is the Last Supper, all right? What we call communion. Communion is something that we participate in each week here at PCC. It's a time for us to celebrate and to remember what Jesus has done for us uh, because of the way he, he gave his life for us. And in the context of this last meal, this last meal together, Jesus drops this bomb into the gathering when he says to, to the, his disciples present, I am going to be betrayed. And if that's not enough, I'm going to be betrayed by someone who is here with me right now. It's going to be one of you. And in the Gospel of Luke, what we have recorded for us, and if you're reading through that section there in the scriptures, you, you see that this leads the disciples into a, a, an interesting discussion. Not only are they, do they start talking about who among them might do such a thing, but they also start talking about well, who's the greatest? They start talking about which one of them is the greatest of the disciples. And that seems like a strange conversation for them to have at that moment, doesn't it? But when you stop and think about it, it really starts to make sense. Because here the disciples are saying, you know what? I would never betray Jesus. I'm not the one that's going to betray him. After all, look at how, how faithful I am. Look at how good of a disciple I am. Did you hear my prayer the other night over supper? It was really impressive, wasn't it? Right? You, did you see how I follow Jesus? I, I, I just obey. It's, it's not going to be me. And then I can almost hear in the course of the conversation, one of the disciples pipes up and goes, yeah, 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 yeah. But at least we didn't have our mom come in and ask Jesus if we could sit at his right and left during supper. So, you know, and on and on this discussion would go. And if you don't know that story, it's a, it's a fun story. that You'll find it at some point. Um, Jesus is there in the midst of them. And while this is going on, Jesus corrects them. He begins to take this opportunity to teach them the truth. And what he says is that the greatest among you will be a servant. If you want to rule, you must serve. And Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. And this is amazing that Jesus teaches in this moment with love because he knows how important this moment is. And in the midst of, of everything that's happening, he turns to Simon Peter. And while I don't know how this exactly happened, right? I wasn't there, and the video recording got lost at some point or other, but, but we, what we know and what we see and what we can envision is Jesus addressing all the disciples, and he's telling them all this information about what's going to happen, and I envision Peter being more and more distraught the more Jesus shares, and at some point, Jesus steps over to Simon Peter, and he puts his hand on his shoulder, and very lovingly, and, but very firmly, I believe, he says these words to Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fall, fail, and when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Can you picture this happening? Can you see this uh, happening? Uh, Jesus is there with all the disciples, and yeah, it's up there. And so he's there with all the disciples, and he puts his hand on his shoulder, and, and he says these words. And there's two important things that, that Jesus says to Peter in this moment. First, he says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now, we could spend a lot of time chasing this rabbit down the trail and, and parsing out how and who and what and why and all the, that Jesus meant when he said Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. We could also spend some time talking about this process of what it means to sift wheat, because I doubt that's something that you're really familiar with in your life, not something you do on a 
ever basis, right? And we could talk about how that happens and the significance of that and, and the mental picture that would have been in the disciples' minds as Jesus said this, but I'm not sure that would move us forward on where we need to go today, so we'll just put that in a box and we'll save it for another day. What's more fascinating and to me even more significant, at least in this context, is the fact that when Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, the you that Jesus is you, that Luke records that Jesus used here is plural, which leads us to believe that while Jesus is, you know, he's got his hand on Peter's shoulder, at least the way I see it, and he's saying, Simon, Simon, he's addressing the entire group. It's like he gets Simon's attention, and everybody stops talking, and then he says this to them, you guys, you're going to be sifted as wheat, all of you are going to be sifted as wheat. When, when Bryson was teaching us, you know, the different verbs and, and things in this and, and nouns and all the way that you can read the words and what they all mean, this word is the, the all y'all. That's how we remembered it. So all y'all, you're going to be sifted as wheat. That, that's what Jesus is saying. You're going to be sifted so we can see what happens. You're going to be faced with these difficult trials, and it's up to you how you're going to respond when those trials come. And then Jesus goes on and says in verse 32, but I have prayed for you, Simon. And in this sentence, in this context, the word for you there is singular. Jesus is now speaking directly to Peter. And it's as if Jesus was saying, hey, Peter, I pray that you will be strong. Because while this is going to be difficult for everybody and this is going to be a difficult time, this is going to be especially difficult for you. So I want you to know, I'm praying for you. Now let's just take a time out real quick. Jesus says to Peter, I'm praying for you. Do you understand the power that there is in the moment when someone wants you to pray for them and you say, I will pray for you? Do you understand the significance of that? It's something we are called to do. It's something we have the opportunity to do. It's something we have the privilege of doing is praying for each other. And, and here Jesus is emphasizing this fact. Peter, there's all kinds of things I could do for you. He's Jesus after all, right? And he says to Peter, I'm going to remove you from all these trials. No. He says, I'm going to pray for you. You are a leader among this group. You are, are going to be able to strengthen the rest of the disciples in the future. And, and Peter, being the guy that we know and, and we love, right? Peter responds in a way that's not very surprising. He says, thank you very much, Jesus. I really appreciate that. No, Peter is Peter, and we love him for it. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death, right? And here's the thing. I would suggest this is not something that Peter just flippantly said. It's not something he said to, to sound impressive or courageous. I believe Peter meant this. He loved Jesus. He believed in Jesus. He was willing to follow Jesus anywhere, even if that meant prison, even if that meant death. Peter is declaring more than anything, Jesus, I am not the one who's going to betray you. It's not going to be me. And in this scene that, that we're going to read about in the Scripture in just a second, this is one of those scenes that, that I've played over in my brain hundreds of times, really. And I've tried to look at it from various angles and from different vantage points. I've tried to imagine how Jesus said these words to Peter. 
Were these words soft and gentle? Did Jesus lock eyes with Peter? Did, did he look sad? Did he look resolute? Did he just look disappointed? Was he resigned to the truth? Was it just the, the loving gaze that we, we think of often when we think of Jesus? And then what was Peter's reaction? Was it shock? Was it dismay? Was it sadness? Was it rejection? And, and how did the other disciples respond when Jesus was speaking directly to Peter? Was it relief when Jesus says this to Peter? Because they're like, it's not me. Did they experience fear? Because after all, if Jesus is saying these things can happen to Peter, who was one of the inner three of the disciples, then, then what did that mean for them? There are all these different things. And as for me, I haven't found one scenario that puts all the pieces of the puzzle together for me. So if you've got this figured out and you've got your own scene, I would love to hear it from you at some point. But in the midst of all of this, Jesus, according to Luke's recording of what happened, he answered Peter's proclamation of prison and even death by saying these words, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Jesus knew that even though Peter's heart was sincere, there were difficult times ahead. Not just for himself, but for Peter and the rest of the disciples as well. What about you in your life? Can you be truly sincere in your faith and still have those difficult times in your life? Peter, in this moment, in this moment of time, Jesus is saying all these things that are about to happen, and, and Peter does not want these things to happen to Jesus because he's like, no, 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 this, this cannot happen. And he says to Jesus, no, I, I will go to prison with you and even death. And Jesus says, no, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me three times. And, and Peter just can't wrap his head around this. And, and with the rest of the disciples, he's there. And I just want you to just take a moment and to put yourself in that position and feel the weight of what's happening when Jesus says these words to Peter. And ask yourself, would Jesus say the same to you? There's a second man this morning that, that we want to take a look at. Yeah. He faced something very similar in his life. And his name is Judas. And while we may know his story it's good for us to take a moment and to look at it again. If you go back to Matthew now, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. What we find, if you turn there, is Matthew's account of this same event kind of happening, the Last Supper. Uh, Matthew and Luke are writing from different perspectives to different audiences uh, the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, and it, it really helps us have a, a more well-rounded view of who Jesus is. And through the four Gospels, we, we gain an understanding of Jesus and how he's revealing God to us and, and what all that means. And in the first part of Matthew 26, uh, Matthew records for us how the chief priests and the elders of the people were looking for a way to arrest and kill Jesus, but they wanted to do that in such a way that would not cause a riot because of all of Jesus' followers. And then if you look at verse 14 of chapter 26, what you find is that they found a way, right? They found a way through one of Jesus' disciples. Judas was their man, and for 30 pieces of silver, he would keep an eye out for an opportune time to hand Jesus over to them. And in Matthew's account of this Last Supper, in verse 20, the text says this, When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. 
And they were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely not I, Lord, right? And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, yes, it is you. You see, For the rest of the disciples, the other 11, including Peter, when they said, surely not I, Lord, I I would never betray you, I I believe they meant it, right? They had no plans. They they could not imagine doing such a thing. But for Judas, he'd already made the plans, right? He'd already taken the 30 pieces of silver. He he was looking for that opportunity to betray Jesus. And, And whether Judas was trying just to maintain an image and blend in with the rest of the disciples, because after all, if everyone else is asking that question, he should probably ask that question too, right? Or maybe he was trying to figure out how much Jesus knew. Did Jesus know what I'd done already, right? Uh, we don't know. There could have been some other reason that, that Judas asked, but he, he knew now that Jesus knew. So he probably said, I have to act quick or I'm gonna lose my opportunity before it's gone. And what's interesting to me as I thought about this is is that I believe there was a time when Judas would have been right there with the rest of the disciples. And he he would have sincerely and honestly stated, surely not I, Lord. I would never do such a thing. But here's the thing. Both Peter and Judas, one of the things they had in common in this situation, was how they underestimated their own weakness. How they were both very confident in themselves and their ability to stand firm and to do the right thing. Both Peter and Judas, I believe they never thought they would fail or fall in such a dramatic way. And yet what we see is that both men did. They both fell. They both failed big time. And one of the things to point out that's significant for us to consider is how each and every one of us are really a lot like Peter, and Judas, because all of us are really capable of something like that. Our desires is often to do what is best for us and to do the things that we believe we deserve and to do the things we believe we should do in order to receive what we deserve. That's a strong desire within us, and we're not really being honest with ourselves if we deny that that is true or we minimize the potential impact that that can have in our life. We are all capable of that. All of us, you, me, your grandma, your uncle, your teacher, your sister, your friend, your pastor, your priest, everybody, we are all capable of sinning and letting God down, of letting others down, letting ourselves down. We all have that ability. In 1 Corinthians, uh, we have recorded for us the writings of Paul, and he's writing to the church at Corinth. And in this letter, he reminds his audience of a lot of the mistakes that the nation of Israel had made. And he shares those mistakes in order to, to prove as a warning to the people of, hey, this is what they did, so, so just don't do those things, right? And in chapter 10, verse 12, uh, Paul writes these words. He says, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's like what it says back in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It's a warning that was issued before and after this event. It's a warning that that Peter and Judas did not pay attention to. And it's a warning for us as well. If you think you are good, if you think you have it all figured out, if you think everything is just fine, be careful. 
Because everyone is capable of falling, of failing, of sinning, of betrayal. Both Peter and Judas, they were not above falling. Both of them underestimated their own weakness. If you jump down to verse 47 of Matthew 26, we read a little bit more about Judas. It says, while he, being Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. They're out in the Garden of Gethsemane at this point, and it says, with him were, uh, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas says, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Judas, he had a plan, right? He had a signal. He was intentional about what he was doing. He went right up to Jesus and he did that which he said he was going to do. Now, now again, we could chase a rabbit down this trail and try to get into the mind of Judas and try to figure out what he was thinking and his motives what he thought would happen? Did he think that he would you know, cause Jesus to now take power? Did he think that he was really trying to, to, to cause something else to happen? We just don't know. What we do know is that Judas shared the information with the chief priest and the elders of the people, and he made a way for Jesus to be taken when he would not be in the public eye. He would not be in the spotlight. It was under the cover of darkness, so people would not know what had happened until it was far too late, and Judas betrays Jesus. As it says in 1 Corinthians, he fails, he falls. And then later in, in this same long chapter of Matthew, we read what happens to Peter. Jesus is arrested, and he's being away, led away to the high priest. And, and what does Peter do? Well, Peter wants to know what's going on, but he doesn't really want to be seen, so he follows at a distance. He follows in the shadows, and, and he, he tries to find out what's happening to Jesus. And if you jump down to verse 69 of that chapter, the text says this. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. That's one. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a while, those standing there went to Peter and said, surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away, right? Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And just like Jesus said it would happen, Peter denies Jesus three times. And it's not just a simple, I don't know him. It is the first time, but the second time he takes an oath, and the third time he calls down curses upon himself. It's as if he were saying, I am telling you the truth, and if I'm not telling you the truth, may God deal with me ever so severely. I tell you, I do not know the man. He is insistent. And Peter falls. Both men failed Jesus. Both men betrayed Jesus. Both men deserve to be disqualified from being a disciple of Jesus. And if that were the end of the story, there'd be little reason for us to be here today, right? But because the reality is this, if we're honest... Each and every one of us, in one way or another, has in some form or fashion been just like Peter and just like Judas. We have fallen, we have failed, we have betrayed Jesus. We deserve to be disqualified from being a follower of Christ. But let me remind you, let me remind you of something that I hope you know, that you probably already know, and if you don't know it, it's, it's fun to be able to tell you this. This is not the end of the story. 
It was not the end of the story for Peter or for Judas, and it's not the end of the story for you. Your failing and your falling, your betrayal, does not have to be the end of the story for you either. You see, the amazing thing is, because of the incredible love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that Jesus offers to us, we have another chance. Not a second chance. I'm here to tell you that God does not give you a second chance because if we're truthful, we used that up a long time ago, right? What we need is another chance. And God gives us another chance. And he gives the disciples another chance. And here's where we see how they respond. When these two men recognize their failure, what do they do? First Peter In verse 74, after he denied Jesus for the third time, the text says this, immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. If you turn over to Luke's account of this same thing, we have a detail that that he includes that is right out of an intense movie scene, right? And if you can picture this in your brain, imagine you, you don't know the story, you don't know where it's going, it's projected on the screen, and the text tells us that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, Can you see this happening in your cinematic brain for the moment? Can you imagine the the gasp of the crowd that's seen this for the first time, the heartbreak and the agony and the disappointment and the failure that, that Peter experienced? It broke him. What had Peter been doing? He'd been following Jesus, kind of blending into the crowd, trying not to be noticed, and yet when this happens, he goes off by himself and he weeps bitterly. I believe he repented and he poured himself out before God. He was humbled, he was broken, and he didn't know what else to do except to throw his life before the Lord. Judas, he had a different response. If you go back to Matthew into chapter 27 and verse 3, we read about Judas. The text says this, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priest and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. And then he went away. And hanged himself. And that sentence and that account should give us pause for just a moment. What a tragic end to the life of a disciple, of a follower of Jesus. Judas knew that he had done wrong, that he had fallen, that that he had failed. He had remorse and and he felt bad, but he didn't seem to have repentance. Remorse, and I know these aren't the official definitions and we can argue about this, but but remorse is this deep regret and guilt and shame. Remorse says, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry that I got caught and the guilt is too much to live with. But repentance says, God, I let you down and I'm sorry and I own this and I cannot make it right on my own. I need you, I need your love, I need your grace, I need your mercy, I need your forgiveness. And those were the two contrasting responses we see between Peter and Judas. There was a point made by Pastor Mark that I found very interesting. He, he, his argument is that, that Judas's greatest failure was not the decision to betray Jesus, but that his greatest failure was that he chose not to fully believe Jesus. 
All the things he had seen and all the things he had heard, all the things that he had experienced and all the things that he had participated in, and yet he didn't truly and fully and completely believe Jesus. Judas saw Jesus heal and lives changed. He saw people come to faith. He saw amazing things that that Judas didn't seem to believe were possible in his own life, that his life could be changed, that his sins could be forgiven. And maybe that's why he took his own life, because he did not truly believe that there was hope for him, that forgiveness was possible, and that he could change and have another chance. And here's, here's where these two stories begin to get very real in our lives. At least I would say that they do. Because if we fail, if we fail to believe in the life-changing love of Jesus Christ and the complete forgiveness that God offers to us through his son, Jesus Christ, if we do not believe that to our core, then we are susceptible to the doubt and the fear and the uncertainty about the power of Jesus' love in our life. Amen? Now, hear me on this. You may have doubt and uncertainty uh, about a lot of the finer points of theology and questions with no clear answers, that's, that's fine. It's probably even healthy. But I pray that you would never, never, never doubt the love Jesus has for you. The love that he wants you to experience. The love that he wants you to have in your life every day. Never doubt that Jesus can and will. And if you've asked, he already has forgiven your failings and your sins and your fallings and your doubt and your uncertainty. He's given that over. It's, It's gone. And any betrayal that you may feel is gone because a loving father, he forgives those things. That's what a loving father does. God doesn't offer us just a second chance. He gives us another chance. And church, I ask you, do you believe that to be true? Do you believe that to be true in your life? Do you believe that to be true in the lives of others? We deserve to be disqualified, but because of his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, we are not. And that is the good news of the scriptures that you hopefully are holding in your hand. We see it in the life of Peter. In John chapter 21, we see how Jesus tells Peter, I want you to take care of my sheep. I want you to be uh, the people, the person who my people can look to, to take care of my people, to be a shepherd, to be a pastor. Jesus says to them, to Peter in Luke 22, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And don't miss this. Jesus doesn't pray. Peter, I pray that you don't fail. He says, I pray that your faith will not fail. Because even in the midst of his failure, Jesus knew that he needed to be strengthened. It says, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Even though Peter fell, even though he he didn't do what he desired to do because of grace, God lifted him back up and he took the next step in his faith. And we are called to allow God to lift us back up so that we can take that next step in our faith as well. As the church began, if you go to Acts, if you wanna flip over there and you see how the, the church began, who was on the front lines talking about the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus? Who was it? It was Peter, right? Peter's faith did not fail, even though he failed. And because his faith did not fail, thousands of people came to know Christ because Peter could say firsthand, I know personally what it looks like when you fail Jesus and when you fall and when you feel like there's nothing you can do. 
I know firsthand what it's like to have everything stripped away and to be so disappointed with self and maybe even with God that things don't go the way you think they are and you don't know what to do, so you pour yourself out. I know what that's like. And then Peter also is able to say, but I want you to know, I also know firsthand what his grace and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness looks like because I deserve to be disqualified, but because of the grace of God, I am not. Peter says that message to the people in different words, but he says, you know what? This is what this is about. And because of that message, people came to know Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you feel like a failure. You've let yourself down, your spouse down, your family down, your kids. You've let God down. And do you know what I have to offer you for that? Do you know the solution to that? It's not some three-step process. It's not a magic prayer. It's not your signature on a check or, or some good advice. I offer you Jesus, and that's it. Because that's all we need. We need him in our life. We need his love and his grace and his mercy and forgiveness, his life and his death and his life again. I offer you Jesus, and the question I have for you today is how do you respond to him? Not to me, not to this church, not to anything else, but how do you respond to him? We believe here that that his word demands a response in our life. And this morning, we want to give you two practical ways to respond to Jesus to his love and his grace and his mercy and forgiveness. One of those ways is something we do each week is we participate in communion. Uh, There are four communion tables here in the auditorium this morning. And in just a couple of moments, we're gonna invite you to respond to the Lord by going and participating in communion, to make your way uh, up one of the the side aisles, uh, to come to one of the tables, and then to return to your seats down the center or the far side just to help us with a little traffic flow. And when you get to the table, the first person there, if you could just remove the covers from, from those trays, then that will allow all of us to, to experience the, the bread which represents Jesus' body and the blood which repre- or the, the juice which represents his blood. And those emblems that, that we partake in, we celebrate and we remember the love Jesus demonstrated for us when he gave his life for us so, so that we can acknowledge Jesus in all that he has done and all that he does for us. The second way we want to invite you to respond this morning is for you to act and to respond in what you believe, to take that next step in your faith wherever you are, to allow God to meet you there and to take that next step in your faith, in your heart, in your mind, and allow him to begin transforming you to provide connection, to provide change, to allow God to do his work in your life. And and maybe for you, you desire to to have someone talk to you about your relationship with God and and what it really means to discover and experience his life-changing love. It could mean that you wanna take that next step and that next step for you is, is to make PCC your church family or to be obedient in baptism or just simply to have someone pray with you. Maybe the step for you is to surrender your life to the Lord for the first time and and say, I don't have it all figured out, and I don't need to have it all figured out. I just need to know that I need Jesus. And we would love to talk to you about his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and how it is available in your life. We would love to be able to take that step of faith with you in your life. So as we participate in communion and as we then sing together and we respond to the Lord, We invite you to respond, to take of the elements, to contemplate the next step for you that God is leading you to in your life of faith. And if you want to talk to someone about what's going on uh, when we sing here in just a moment, there'll be people over by the cross that would would love to pray with you and encourage you and talk to you and just just invest in you as, as we walk through this life together.
So I'm gonna pray, and after I pray, I just invite you, when you're ready, to make your way to one of the tables, and after we partake and as we sing, let's respond to the Lord together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for this time that we have where we can respond to what you've already done. We can be so thankful for your love, so thankful for your mercy, so thankful for your grace and your forgiveness. God, as we approach you, as we're in your presence, would you help us to focus in on you and on you alone and to celebrate who you are? Thank you, Father. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.